As you turn there, I don't know if any of you have visited the Freedom Tower since it's been completed in New York City. About a year and a half ago, I took my, my three children to there, One World Trade Center, and I was shocked at, what, at how interactive the experience was from beginning to end. While we waited in line, you could hear and read stories of the people who lived through and and died in 9-11. You get in the elevator and the walls on three sides are are these, and I hope I'm not spoiling this for anybody, but here you go. The walls on three sides are are just uh, video screens. And as you go up, the the screens show progressively, chronologically, when the buildings went up on the city of Manhattan. And you see Manhattan grow right on the sides of the elevator. For the 53-second ride that it takes to get up over 100 floors, you see Manhattan rise from, being, from trees to what it is today. And then the doors open, and there is another screen. And you walk to the, this, uh, this, this bar, and you, you're told about New York City and, and, and what it's like today. And then, in a very dramatic fashion, the, the screens roll up right in front of you, and there is New York City. The vista right in front of you is very powerful, spectacular view, very emotional. This Freedom Tower is full of emotion and meaning, down, down to the details of the structure, it's full of meaning. The base of the Freedom Tower is exactly the 200 foot by 200 foot of the original Twin Towers. The octagonal design, eight sides, is giving homage to the two towers that fell, four sides each. The top floor of the Freedom Tower is 1,368 feet above ground level precisely, which is exactly the height of the original One World Trade Center. And with its spire, its overall height is 1,776 feet, declaring the year that we proclaimed our freedom. The Freedom Tower is built to send a message loud and clear to the world about American freedom, our power, our resilience, our independence. And that's exactly the message that is being sent today in our text about another tower that's being built. A message loud and clear, not to the world, but to God. Read with me, verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language in common in speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing is impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their languages so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. 
That is why it is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the world scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So here we are in the fourth section of Genesis that starts in chapter 10, verse 1, and goes clear through to verse 9 of chapter 11. These are the generations or the accounts of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And compromises a genealogy in chapter 10. And then this short narrative in chapter 11. And these two go together because although 10 and 11, 10 precedes 11, 11 is actually rooted back in 10. If you look with me back in chapter 10, verses uh, 8 through 12, we read there that Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, Nimrod, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of this kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, Kenna, in Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ayr, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. See, after the flood, humanity began to repopulate and scatter over the earth through Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's what chapter 10 is telling us. And they, they spread all the way to, the, to the, this plain called Shinar. And there they begin to build a civilization, it says. They begin to build cities. They begin to build a kingdom without God. They begin to build a kingdom without God. All you have to do is look at the root and the fruit of this. You see the root and the lineage of Ham, that is the cursed lineage, Noah. And we look at its leader, Nimrod, whose name actually means, if you translate it, I will rebel. Then you look at the fruit. Look at the fruit of his building. There we have Babylon and Assyria, and Nineveh, all godless nations. And if you go further in in verse 15 of chapter 10, you see that, that actually the Canaanites were born out of that lineage, out of this godless building of cities. And then you look at what they built. That's chapter 11. They built this tower. This skyscraper with a clear message, a symbolic tower in Babylon to send a message to God that said, we declare our freedom from you. We are independent of you. This is our freedom tower, they're saying. This message is pretty clear in two ways in our text, in two ways. The first way is they are seeking their own security. They're seeking their own security. They're seeking security apart from God. If you look at verse 2 in chapter 11, you see that as men they moved eastward and they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. As mentioned in, in most commentaries, eastward is not a good direction in the book of Genesis. 
In the book of Genesis, if you're going eastward, it's usually away from God. You have that with Adam and Eve being cast out eastward. You have that with Lot moving away from Abraham. In which direction did he go? East. Toward what two cities? Sodom and Gomorrah. You have Jacob fleeing eastward after he steals the birthright from Esau. And here we see people moving eastward to the plain of Shinar. But that's not the most significant thing in that verse. The most significant thing in that verse are actually the last three words. And settled there. Moses uses this very intentionally to show their rebellion against God. They were settling there. See, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, in God's first command to humanity, what do we hear? He said, God blessed them and said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it or tend it or care for it. The command is so central to what God is doing that after he, he judges the earth with the flood, the first command he gives to Noah back in chapter 1 of verse 9 is what? A recapitulation of this same command. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. God wants people to fill the earth. God wants people to scatter. And yet we read here, In verse 4, very, very significantly, it says, we'll make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. See, God wants his image bearers. He wants people that bear his image to go around the whole earth, the earth to be filled with his image bearers. People of God, do you know what God's big plan is in mind from Genesis to Revelation? The meta-narrative of the whole Bible? It's not a hidden agenda here. It starts in verse 28 of chapter 1 and goes clear through to the book of Revelation. It's for him to receive Glory. We say that again. The meta narrative of the whole Bible is for God to be glorified. That's it. That's the purpose. He wants the earth to be filled with people who love him, who worship him, who praise him, who give him glory. This is Yahweh's grand plan. Redemptive history is not about you and me. It really isn't. It's about him in his glory from beginning to end. That's why the first question of your devotions should always be, what does this tell me about God? Not, how should I live a more fulfilled life because of what I read? Yes, that is a question later. 
But the very first question should be, how does this tell me? What does this inform me about the God who wants to be glorified in his grand plan? As our main purpose, our chief end, we are to glorify God. We are to know God and make him known, however you want to say it. Isn't that what Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission, is just, again, a recapitulation of Genesis 1.28 and 9.1? Jesus said to his disciples, Go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey everything I commanded you. Scatter. Go. And when they weren't scattering in the book of Acts, God divinely persecuted, let persecution break out in the church. So why? So they would scatter. Why? Because you and I are a lot like Nimrod. You and I are a lot like those people. We like to settle. We like to rebel and settle. Why? Why, why? why is our flesh like that? Well, because scattering is scary, isn't it? It's going out into the unknown. And we don't like that. We want to make our own secure little places. Scattering is scary. There's a story about a spy who was captured and sentenced to death by a general of the Persian army. Before carrying out the sentence, the general gave the spy a strange choice. He told him he could have the choice of a firing squad or go through this big black door over here. After a while, the spy, the spy chose the firing squad and within a few minutes he was dead. The general turned, the generals turned to his aide and said, they always prefer the known way versus the unknown. The aide was curious and said, well, what's behind the black door? The general turned to him and said, freedom. The door leads to the outside. The unknown is so scary that we rarely go in that direction. There's no security in scattering, is there? We find security in numbers. They, they sure did in chapter 11. Let's get together because there's security in numbers. We love the known, don't we? Security and settling. And we even call them by quaint names like comfort zones. You ever think about that? A comfort zone is, is a predetermined little place that you know about and that feels safe for you. Settling. We rebel and settle into our churches, don't we? We make what God intended to be a scattering tool into a settling tool, don't we? I mean, imagine next spring if you get out your, broad, your Scots broadcast spreader and you start to want to spread some fertilizer or seed on your lawn and, and, and you start walking and nothing's coming out. So you pull and pull and you shake and shake, at least that's what I do. And you keep going, the bin is full, but nothing's coming out. We think, gosh, that must be broken. 
God's church is to be a broadcast spreader. We're to be spreading God's word and the good news of Jesus Christ. His plan is to spread his glory, to broadcast his glory throughout the world by changing pagans into little God glorifiers. To fill the earth with his glory, yet we like the security of our own little God groups, don't we? Let's just stay here. This is, this is, this is comfortable. I went to a Nine Marks conference last week with my brother Ed on church planting and revitalization. And one of the speakers said something very obvious and something very basic, but it's kind of hung with me. He said this, it's not the job of denominations or boards or parachurch ministries or church planting organizations to plant churches. Churches plant churches. Gosh, that's pretty simple. Allow me to put this in the vernacular of Genesis chapter 11. It is the church's responsibility to scatter. It is Southwest West Harbor Congregational Church's responsibility to scatter. And guys, doesn't that sound scary? It does to me when you start like thinking about the implications of that. It would be very easy for us to settle, wouldn't it? Really easy. Let's just settle. You know, we have familiar people. We have familiar gifts. We're starting to work well together. We have a familiar budget. We have a familiar place. Let's just settle. This is great, isn't it? Being in the broadcast bin and not going anywhere. But the Lord says, scatter. And we so we see that we're not so different from the people on the plains of Shinar after all. We look to settle, not scatter, to gain our own security apart from God's commands. But there's a second rebellion we find here in what they built, and that is to have their own significance. They wanted their own security, but they sure wanted their own significance. That's found in verses 3 and 4 of our text. And they said to each other, this, this threefold, come, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. We're told explicitly that the purpose of this freedom tower was to make a name for themselves, right? Come, let us build and make a name for ourselves. They wanted to gain their independence from God. We're going to make a name apart from God. They wanted to gain their own significance. They quite literally wanted an I-directed life. Interesting, in a 2013 issue of Rolling Stone magazine, uh, the co-host of the Howard Stern show, uh, Robin Quivers, had just gone through a a 17-month battle with cancer, with chemotherapy and radiation. 
and they were interviewing it about it. And they asked her what she learned from the experience, and this is what she said. What I learned is very simple, that your life belongs to you. And it really doesn't matter what you do with it, but it should be what you want to do. It should be an I-directed life. That's the only purpose for being here. That's what she came to. An I-directed life. And that's in essence what the builders of the Tower of Babel were saying to God. I want an I-directed life. I want significance apart from you. I want independence from you. We want to make a name for ourselves. And that's our sinful tendency, isn't it? That's, that's our flesh crying out. I just want a name for myself. I want to be great in some area apart from God. To be great in our own eyes, to be significant in the eyes of the world. Don't we, don't we run after that? I want to be significant in the eyes of the world. Not many people have done that at such a young age as Michael Phelps. If you're, even if your sports knowledge is slight, you know that name. He's the Olympic swimmer. And he's graced over 12 Sports Illustrated covers. The last time wearing 23 of his 28 medals. He was wearing the 23 gold that he won. They hung 18 pounds around his neck. He dominated the pool for the last 16 years in the Olympics. To put what he has accomplished into perspective, if he'd been his own nation at the last four Olympics, Phelps would rank 13th in medals just behind the Netherlands. That's significant. He has made a name for himself that is quite significant, that will last quite a long time. And whether you want to gain your significance from swimming or from business or from grades in school or from high school football. I just went to the uh, high school football banquet you know, and what the MDI Trojans have done these last two years is quite remarkable, making it to the States last year and to the, to the semifinals this year. Quite remarkable. It is a significant achievement. But be careful not to gain your significance from that. You have to watch out. I know, and I'm sure you know, some people in your life that you look back on and they think that high school was the high point of their life. I'm serious. That's when I was significant. That's when I did significant things. Because that's such a temptation to run after and grab hold of significance apart from God. To make a name for ourselves. But no matter how great we think we are, look at what God has to do in verse 5. No matter how great 
They're building this huge tower that's going up into the clouds. And it says in verse 5, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. (laughs) They were building this mighty, awesome edifice to their greatness and to their significance. And God had to come down to see it. Don't miss the irony there, guys. Don't miss the irony. Mankind thought they were so great, building this mighty skyscraper dedicated to their freedom and independence and greatness, dedicated to their eye-directedness, and God had to come down to see it. You've heard me quote this before and even reference it earlier in the worship service, but Philip Brooks, writing on humility, says, The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature. And that will show you the real smallness of your greatness. And throughout Scripture, guys, God is constantly showing his greatness and asking us, Stand up so that you can see your smallness. Things like Isaiah forty twenty two. This I open the service with this. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its peoples are like grasshoppers. Smallness of our greatness. Isaiah sixty six Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The smallness of our greatness. Psalm 8, you know this well. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? That is intended to show us the smallness of our greatness and humble us. This is standing at your real height next to true greatness. But here at the Tower of Babel, man is showing that they were not interested in standing next to God. That they were interested in the greatness of our greatness. So God humorously comes down to see their greatness. But make no mistake about it, people. God was not smirking. He was not laughing when he came down. He does not laugh at sin. Now, the reaction of God to sin is always a severe mercy. The reaction to sin that God has is always a severe mercy. There's a book by that title. It's an autobiographical account of the courtship and marriage of Sheldon and Jean Van Auken. In it, Sheldon writes of how these two agnostics, proclaimed agnostics, met and fell in love and made their love their purpose, the center of their life, their marital love, the center of their life. He goes goes into great detail in the book and how they made their love the center of their lives and they erected what they called shining barriers to prevent the creeping separateness which destroys marriages, they said. Some of the barriers they put in place included the principle of spontaneity, the principle of the affirmative, the principle of courtesy. They structured a precise plan to remain in love throughout their lifetime. They even frequently held what they called navigator councils together. They got together and talked 
and discussed the state of their relationship. They worked at their marriage, and love was at the center. And then Jean got sick and died at 40. Around that time, Sheldon became friends with C.S. Lewis, who walked with him through his wife's sickness and death and eventually led Sheldon to the Lord. Lewis writing about the role of Jean's death in Sheldon's conversion, he wrote this, Jean's death was a severe mercy. Her death brought about his reconciliation to God, perhaps the salvation of his soul, but at a severe price and loss. Severe mercy could be said about what God did here in judgment. Confusing the languages. It was a severe mercy. It was severe in that it was a judgment. He confused their languages. This was God's judgment on their prideful sin. Think about it. All of a sudden, extended families maybe couldn't communicate anymore. You know, they they couldn't reach out and talk to each other the way they used to. They couldn't say, I love you, because they couldn't understand each other. We're still feeling the tangible effects of Genesis chapter 11 today, aren't we? All you have to do is travel and sit in a restaurant in a small town where English is not the common language and you struggle. I think of my my sons who are trying to learn Latin and my daughter who's trying to learn Spanish, how they're struggling at home to understand to these confused languages. We're still feeling these effects. The confusion of languages was a severe judgment, as judgment of sin always is, people. It's always severe. God never, ever, ever winks at sin. You know, when we tell our testimony, sometimes we, we laugh when we're telling of, of our sinful days. We want others to laugh with us. It's not laughing. We shouldn't be laughing. God takes sin very seriously. And we see here in the confusion of languages But right beside the severity of judgment, do you see the mercy? I had to look for it. I mean, guys, the principle in Scripture is where you see judgment, look for mercy. Where's the mercy here? I think it's in verse 6. Where God says, If it was one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Why does God say this? Why does he embed that here? Kent Hughes is very helpful here when he comments, God was troubled by what would happen to humanity if they were left unchecked. They would build up a delusion of self-sufficiency. 
through their false religion, corporate security, and political uniformity. In other words, God knew that their progress posed a threat, not to him. He he wasn't threatened by the tower and what they were doing. He was posed a threat to us. Because God knows that as we build our self-sufficient lives, we're in danger. The more distant we become from God because of our self-sufficiency, the less we would even be able to see our need for God because we're self-sufficient. Former Minnesota governor and professional wrestler Jesse Ventura actually puts voice to this self-sufficiency and where it leads. Listen to what he said. Organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people. I went there to show you where that path leads. Self-sufficiency leads there every time, if left unchecked. That's the delusion of self-sufficiency. And the severe mercy we see here is that God limited our progress in order to limit the damage. Because self-sufficiency hardens hearts towards God. Self-sufficiency hardens hearts towards the gospel of Jesus Christ's people. That's what Jesus was identifying in the rich young ruler. When after he left, he turned to his disciples and said, I tell you the truth, it's hard. Not impossible. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because riches creates self-sufficiency. I don't need much. I can do it all. I can buy. I can make my life comfortable. And wealth is not the only breeder of self-sufficiency. Any strength can be fertile ground. Any strength. Good health. Don't see a need for God until you get that bad report. Success, sports, relational, business. Don't see need for God until sports aren't there anymore. Until my business fails. Until that relationship ends. Even the ideology of self-sufficiency. We Mainers know this, don't we? This is part of our culture. This self-sufficiency. I'm okay. I don't need help. No, thank you. I got this. That's why Maine, one of the reasons, Maine is such hard ground for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of our self-sufficiency. And perhaps the only thing that can snap us out of our delusion of self-sufficiency is a severe mercy. A severe mercy. That's what, the, that's what the cross is. The cross is a severe mercy. Do you realize that? What we are going to remember here in a moment is a severe mercy. We see judgment clearly at the cross, don't we? God doesn't wink at sin. He sends his son. 
He sends his only son, his beloved son, to live a really hard life. To live perfectly under the law. He takes sin so seriously and the punishment of so seriously that we see a visible picture of that on the cross, don't we? When we break the bread, we're reminding ourselves of that picture of Christ, what punishment for sin looks like. It looks like a bruised and battered and spat upon and bloody body hanging on a cross. And he hangs there until there's no breath left in his lungs. And then his body goes limp. His body is broken for you. That's God's punishment on sin. It's Jesus Christ hanging limply on the cross. But there's also mercy at the cross, and that's what's so beautiful. It is a severe mercy. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He bore our sins in his body on a tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. There's the mercy. Jesus said it a different way shortly before he died when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though they die, will live. <laughs> Wonderful. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in his work and not your own, you get the mercy and he gets the punishment. That's the gospel. That's what we're celebrating here. That's what we're to meditate on here is the severe mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's take just a few minutes before we take and think about that. And if you're here and, and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if what I've just explained doesn't quite click in your mind, it could be my bad explanation of it. But it could be that you don't know Jesus. And I'd love to talk to you afterwards about that. I'd love to come alongside you and explain the severe mercy of Jesus Christ. Let's take a few minutes together.